It's the first Monday of the month, and we are back responding to your questions. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 457. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. And one way we do that through conversations is conversations with you, our listeners, on things that are important, you're wondering about, maybe you're struggling with right now, that uh, have come in in the last month or so. And once a month, we open up the show to respond to as many of those as we can. I am joined by Bonnie Stahoviak, as I am most every month. Hello, Bonnie. Thanks, Dave. It's great to be here. I was surprised when you were reading off the announcement Episode 457, I'm about to celebrate episode 300, and you're a good more than 150 episodes ahead of that. That's, that's awesome. It, we've, been, we've been at this a while. I realize it's a totally random tangent, and you're probably ready to get to people's questions, but I thought I'd mention it because, hey, 457. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot. And, you know, it, we've been going since 2011 now, so thank you all who have been supporting the show all of this time. And if you are listening for the very first time, thank you for tuning in. And once a month, we do a question and answer show. And if you would like to have a question considered for a future episode and would like some thoughts from us on it, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. That's the very best way to reach us. And we'll be happy to consider it for a future episode. So let's just dive in and handle the first question here. Comes in from Chris. Chris wrote in and said, recently I requested feedback with my supervisor. And when requesting feedback, it was indicated that questions or challenges to ideas or directions were perceived as aggressive and agenda-serving. Ouch, he says. I'd like to make a change and certainly don't want my peer supervisors or anyone else for that matter to feel this way. I come from a field where questioning and direct challenges is valued. However, being in a new role, it's apparent I need to unlearn some habits and begin some new ones. Do you have any advice, resources, or things that I can do to improve? I so appreciate your openness to the feedback, Chris, and to change. One thing I would wonder if you had tried in that conversation or could follow up with is asking the question, if there were one thing I could do differently about providing feedback, what would that be? So you could get a little bit more honed in on how to help your feedback be more effective. A couple of thoughts for you. I don't have a lot to go off of as I think through your questions and it's hard because I'm, I'm making assumptions about you and I could be way off. I have had people who I've known who I perceived as being the first to criticize something, kind of being the first one out of the gate to share feedback and often having that feedback being what's wrong with something. There are many experts who are experts as far as teams. And one of the things I've had to learn as a leader is how valued it can be to have someone on a team who's going to tell me what might go wrong. And I don't want that voice to not come up. But if that's you and that's the primary contribution you're making, I wouldn't want that to be me on a team because, yes, we need that person on a team. But I, I encourage you to continue reflecting and trying to change a little bit such that that's not your contribution. You want your contribution to be one that's more visionary as you look to move forward as a leader. So we want to be asking more than telling. And for you, it might very well be that you even need to be silent and perhaps even just behaviorally count 
I'm making this number up. Tell three other people, give their ideas and share their perspectives. And you don't ever let yourself go unless you're the fourth person to talk. That can help you change the behavior because you sort of have a little scorecard you're keeping for yourself. You don't want to share that with colleagues because I think it would seem, I mean, you might share it with a colleague, a trusted person who could give you feedback and see if it's working. But I mean, you're not going to share that with the whole group because it sort of negates the reason for you doing it. You would be doing it because you wanted to be perceived as someone who cares about the input from the other people on the team and you value the quieter voices in the group. By the way, if only one person responded and then we went on to the next item, it would not be the end of the world if that, if that wasn't your, your chance to give feedback. The other thing that you could think about is to vary the kind of feedback that you provide. So you said that in a prior organization, a prior culture, having that more critical lens was highly valued. It sounds like it isn't here. And so is there something that you can affirm that gets you excited about that project that helps bring out some passion in you? And maybe you only give the critical feedback on rare occasions. That would be something to think about. Keep in mind, again, I don't know you. I don't know, I don't know how helpful this is, but I'm so glad that you're taking the perceptions so seriously around that and, and thinking so critically about the culture and how it might be different and how you can show up and be a more impactful leader. Chris, two thoughts. The first one is I'm thinking about the fact that Michael Bungay Stanier is going to be on the show next week, and he has a new book out called The Advice Trap. One of the invitations that he makes in the book, it's about mostly not giving advice, but on the occasions when we do give advice, I forget the phrase he uses for it, but he makes the invitation to us of when we're going to give a suggestion or advice of playing ourselves down a bit, of starting with something like, gosh, I could be totally wrong about this, or I'm not sure if this is a good idea. And you're still giving the advice you would give. You're still pointing out maybe what's not working, but you're saying it a little softer. So that may be something that you try as well, is that you're still, to Bonnie's point, it's really valuable in most organizations to have someone who is willing to say, hey, here's things that aren't working. Here's a different way to do things. But maybe it's the how you say it you might experiment with a bit. The other thought I have is to experiment. And so whether it's something like Bonnie suggested of maybe you wait till the third or fourth idea has been given and then you jump in and you try that for a few meetings. And then after you do that for a bit, you talk to the person who gave you the feedback and you say, hey, you know, I've been thinking about what you said. And one of the things I've been doing recently is stepping back a little bit more. What do you think? And if you end up hitting the nail on the head the first time out and they say, oh, yeah, you're doing better with that. Great. Then you keep doing it. And if they say some version of, well, no, that's not it or it's not working or I'm not noticing the difference then that also is actually really valuable to you because then you would choose something else to experiment with. And one of the episodes that we had in the past was with Sheila Heen on how to receive feedback and then what to do with it. And she makes that invitation as well is to experiment, try things out. And if you're willing to experiment a bit, you will uncover other data points. You'll figure out what works and what doesn't. And regardless of which tactic you try, I think the tactic itself is maybe a little less important than the actually trying something different and seeing what happens as a result of that. 
I'm excited to hear that episode with Michael. And also, that sounds like a really good book. I did want to caution people that this isn't a one size fits all bit of advice that Dave just gave through Michael's book. Because sometimes as women, I mean, we all can show up as lacking confidence, but it particularly is prominent with women that we can use these tentative phrases in our language and not appear to be as confident of leaders. So this is very delicate. I was sort of chuckling, Dave, as you were saying that, because I certainly use that. I have done that to soften it in a heated sort of political type of dynamic. So I've used it, but I use it consciously. And I know that what I am doing is sort of lowering myself to make it a safer thing for us to talk about. But I also, because I'm aware of it and I'm using it as an instrument, I know that I could speak in more confident language and be more assertive in times when that's going to be more helpful and allow me to be more credible. Yeah, indeed. I'm so glad you mentioned that because, and you tend to be a more direct person and sometimes you... Oh, really? I I did not know that about myself. (laughs) I'll make a note. And so, you know, in this situation where you're getting the feedback, Chris, where, you you know, maybe you're too direct, too much uh, for people, that can be really helpful. To Bonnie's point, not always the right choice, right? Maybe you want to tack the other way if the situation's different. So excited to hear what you decide to do, Chris. Let us know and can't wait. This next question is from Steve. I have just finished listening to episode 452 with John Maxwell. I then went on to listen to 332 with Daniel Pink, and it got me thinking, is there a time when you shouldn't lead? I wonder if you have an episode on when it's better to manage and not lead. I think there's a need for both based on the circumstance to choose which one is appropriate. Ah, Indeed, Steve. Thank you for this question. So first, let's frame The management and leadership distinction, we've said this before, but just the abridged version is, and by the way, there's lots of different opinions on this. This is how I tend to see it, and I think is what's helpful for me in thinking about these distinctions, is management is the activity that you do to answer the question of complexity and handling complexity in an organization, and leadership is the activity we do to answer the question of change in the organization. And of course, most of us are doing both of those things in some quantity in our roles in any given time. The question is more the distribution between them. And if you would like a more detailed primer on the distinctions between leadership and management and how people are important in both, the best overview I know is Tom Henschel aired an episode on Look and Sound of Leadership a couple of years ago on the distinction and in 20 minutes paints it beautifully. So I will link to that in the notes for those who would like to dive in on that more. So to your question, Steve, is, is there a time when you shouldn't lead? Absolutely. If you're using that definition of, is there a time that I shouldn't be trying to change? Yeah. In fact, I think for most people in our listening community and most of the roles and certainly my role and the things I'm doing on a daily basis, more of the time I'm managing than leading in my role. And I think that's probably true for most people, and certainly there are exceptions where the larger the organization, the higher, lo- the higher you go, the more your job is at strategy and maybe innovation. You, maybe you do spend more of your time doing leadership and management, but I don't know anyone who's purely only doing leadership activities and not doing any kind of handling complexity around them. And a lot of people are handling a lot of complexity. So I think the thing you said last is actually 
the answer? Is there a need for both? And based on the circumstance to choose which one's appropriate? Yeah. Depending on what you're trying to do. So if you have tons of work in front of you over the next 90 days for your team and your organization, and it's about execution and getting the work done, you're probably spending most of your time in management. And then there is, of course, a time in all of our roles and in organizations and in seasons of working with customers and maturity of the organization where we will step back for half a day, a day, a retreat, and plan out, okay, what are the things that maybe we need to change or do the activities around change? And so it's less about the role and it's less about the person and it's more about the activity. And I've made this problem worse, Steve, by titling this show Coaching for Leaders because the implication is that leadership is maybe better than management because it's not called coaching for managers. And the implication also is that leader is a person. And I tend to think about it, and I don't always use this in my language, but I do tend to think about it in my heart of hearts of leadership's an activity. Handling change is an activity. Management is an activity, handling complexity. And those activities really go to what is the best for that situation in the moment, whatever it is, and being mindful of what activities right in that situation and when do I put on which hat. So more accurately, the show should probably be called Coaching for leadership and management activities while taking care of people while you're doing it, which would be a <laughs> really long domain name and would cause all kinds of problems with us having to change the name of the show. But you know, you get my point, hopefully, which is I wouldn't get too tied up in the who am I. I would get more tied up in the what do people need from me right now? What do customers need? What does the organization need? And what's the activity that I can do right now, either in change or in complexity, that is going to help handle the situation and make it better for all our stakeholders. As Dave mentioned, there is a breadth of definitions on the difference between leadership and management. Both Dave and I earned our master's and our doctorates in organizational leadership. So we, we've we written our fair share of papers on just that very topic. And one Wh- thing- Which we're going to get to in a moment, by yes. the way, too. <laughs> <laughs> one thing I wanted to bring into the conversation that you didn't mention is when do I need to show up as a follower? Oh, yeah. I noticed that we tend to think that when we've been elevated into positions in the organization that we should exclusively be spending our time leading and managing. And I've had the opportunity to work with people, and I work with people right now who I just, they're staggering in terms of their capabilities. They're leaders in their own right. They're terrific managers. I don't find myself thinking 100% of the time that how I could best support them is by leading them or managing them sometimes, but not as often as you might think. In one particular case, we were just able to open up a resource center for our students who are struggling with food and housing insecurity at my institution. And the leader who, who was working on that project, a lot of times it was, hey, what barriers can I help you with you know what are you what are you running into what are you struggling with i saw myself more as a servant leader you know how can i help you how can i serve you as you really are doing so much of the hard work to to make this possible and one of the things that we are very aware of together is what one of us is good at that the other one isn't and vice versa we actually have a lot of crossover on our strengths but one example would be Hey, let me do the, we were going to present in front of our entire faculty and that same presentation will be delivered to our board of directors. 
And I said, let me do the slide design, even though it's going to be her presenting. But I said, let, I have fun with that. I am good at that. I will lose track of all time because of the, the work on that. And she was able to focus on other things that she loves doing more, she's better at, and so on and so forth. I would encourage you as you reflect on the percentage of time or the times in which you should carve out to, to show your leadership the times you should manage, but also think about followership. I think it really isn't discussed enough in organizations. And we think that we have to be fulfilling those two roles for people that report to us. And sometimes I don't think it's appropriate. I was thinking about the person you're talking about, Bonnie. And what's great about that situation too, speaking of followership, is that you have such a trusting relationship that she's delegated stuff to you with this project and say, here's where I need help here. And (laughs) in fact, I was in for a day the kids and I were volunteering to help and she was delegating stuff to me and the kids <laughs> to do. And I love that. Isn't that great that you have created an environment of trust where you're willing to step in in the role as the follower and do what needs to get done. And that's the most appropriate thing in that. Steve, we wish you the best as you think through these issues and we'd love to hear from you, your reflections after you've had a time to wrestle through it a bit. Thanks for the question, Steve. This question came in from Colin who asked, what qualities or considerations would you suggest researching when exploring an online academic or professional training program for leadership? I'm working with a colleague who is interested in obtaining a certificate in leadership, but not a degree, from a college or university program. Due to time and cost, they're looking at several online programs, but they aren't sure how to approach assessing the quality of the programs, topics, etc. Cost is also a consideration since the employee will be paying out of pocket and isn't being covered by the employer. I've tried to suggest looking at the course syllabus and topic areas, but was hoping you'd have some additional guidance. Bonnie, we referenced education earlier. What should Colin's colleague be thinking about? The first question I would have for your colleague is that whole starting with why. Why do you want to do this? I will say up front, I get a little bit concerned because we're thinking about things like cost and we're thinking about things like quality and you know, there's that expression, Dave, that only two of the three things, it's either going to be cheap, good, or fast, and you can only have two of the, two of the yeah, three. So yeah. I, I do find that to be true in education and training in addition to being true about products that you might purchase. So I'd be thinking right away about that. Generally speaking, if the why has to do with wanting to build one's credibility in their current organization or future organizations, a degree program in leadership might do that better than a certificate could. I'm not saying that all certificates don't do that. It's just generally speaking, the ones that I'm familiar with, it is a degree, but you might earn a certificate on the way. For example, when I earned my master's, it was a master's in organizational leadership. I earned a certificate, a graduate certificate on the way. I find that the certificates tend to be more compelling if they're the next level down of skills. So would it be more beneficial, as an example for your colleague, to earn a certificate in project management or to earn a certificate in lean manufacturing, whatever the field is, those skills-based, knowledge-based certificates tend to have more credibility than something that's a little bit more nebulous, like the topic of leadership. I think one could make the argument that you could put together a portfolio of things that you're doing to advance your leadership skills of the books that you read, the podcasts that you listen to, the projects that you've 
asserted yourself to be a member of in order to solve organizational problems, that sort of thing, that the money and time, when I think about the concerns that this person has, I'm just thinking, well, I really want to know why. And if we're really stuck with a certificate, I'd want you to be exploring others that, again, those those shorter duration, more targeted certificates just seem to have more credibility as far as what I have seen. If you are really stuck on it being an online, you're really stuck on it being from a organization, you want to make sure that organization is accredited by whatever the accrediting body is. It's, it's usually regional here in the United States. And you could even explore some of the very well-known names like your Harvard and your Stanford and your, your Yales and that kind of thing. They'll have extension programs So it is not the same thing as getting a degree from the main institution, but they'll have extensions that are for continuing education. And you might be able to have the added benefit if part of the why is that credibility, then you can be a little bit more particular about the type of institution that you go after. Now, if I back everything up, everything I've said so far is very transactional. And when Dave and I think back on our educational experiences, they weren't transactional I mean, parts of them were, let's get real, <laughs> but, but for the most part, they were transformational. I would encourage your friend to also think about the transformational aspects, and that comes down to looking at the quality. So I'd be looking for what kinds of opportunities emerge as far as mentorship. Are there opportunities for me to get mentored by people in my industry through the organization? opportunities for coaching, to get real, meaningful, authentic feedback throughout the entire process. I find cohorts tend to be good because you can build those deeper, sustained, longer-term relationships with people, and we get to know each other, and we can be real with each other and, and let each other know, kind of be a mirror for the other people that are in your cohort. So those would be the kinds of things I would be looking for candidly, we're all busy. None of us you know, are excited about spending extra money on this. So if you're going to do it, yes, think about the transactional, think about the credibility, ask those why questions, connect it to your career. At the same time, think about the transformation that's possible and see what ways you can dig into what's possible through the various options. A few related thoughts to what Bonnie said. I'm 100% those. The first thing I thought of too, Colin, is what's the goal here? If the goal is there needs to be for the organization or the person a piece of paper with a stamp on it, and that really helps a lot with credibility in next steps, then that's a different answer perhaps than I want to really get better at core leadership skills, and that's the driving behavior. So if it's more of the first and there's a certain bar that needs to be cleared. One of the things I always encourage people to do when they're thinking about what are programs, where should I look, is start looking around the organization and the people who are going to be influenced by that. So if it's a thing in the organization that people go and get leadership certificates or go on and get an MBA or go on and get a master's degree, whatever the you know insert program here, I want to know like of the people who are in the next level positions, the executive leadership team, wherever I want to go next in my career, what programs did they go to? What programs are perceived by that organization and the leaders in the organization, the people who have influence, to be valuable and to be the programs that align well? I, for years, served a client here in Southern California that all of their mid-level management folks would go to get an MBA, and virtually everyone, it seemed like, who was on the fast track went to either UCLA or USC. 
Now, those are great programs. They're not the only great programs, but for whatever reason, in that organization, culturally, those were the two schools that were perceived. No one ever said this out loud, but you know, you could tell like those the people who were the movers were the people tended to go to those programs. And so that's something to be mindful of, you know, to Bonnie's point, like there, there's some tactical stuff here too, right? And that's helpful to just be mindful of that. It's not to say you have to do that, but what are some things that'll be helpful to you and what you're doing? For most people, most managers, leaders, and organizations, I probably would not do, and your friend isn't thinking about this, I would probably not suggest a master's in leadership and going down a degree program. And I also would be cautious about certificate programs that lead into a master's degree in leadership. And here's why. For people like Bonnie and I, who are academics, coaches, consultants, who geek out on this leadership stuff, who have read leadership theory books and talked about them at the dinner table occasionally with each other, uh, like we can geek out on that. That's great. But that is not as practical and actionable as like, hey, how do I delegate effectively? How do I handle conflict well. And in not only master's programs for leadership, a lot of them are geared toward folks who are on the academic track, the consulting track, and in very specific niche areas like, I'm going to work to be an organizational behavior person within an organization or an HR function. Those programs are really great for those folks, and they get into a lot of depth, and they get into a lot of theory. But I don't think for the average leader in the organization that that's always the most helpful and practical way to go. So a standalone certificate program that doesn't lead into a master's degree, I think is more likely to be much more practical, hands-on. And Bonnie, I ended up looking, doing some research last night when I was thinking about this question. I was amazed at how many great, I, I, I was not expecting to find this, but just here in Orange County, we have some amazingly great leadership certificates and some really exciting programs. And I was, I was like, <laughs> I should take some of these classes because they were, they looked really practical. I was pleasantly surprised on like, there was a class on how to handle salary negotiation. And there was a class on how to handle difficult situations with employees and um, how to run a meeting. I was like, yeah, that's really practical stuff. And if it's not so important, what the school name says on it and what the certificate says on it, then you can go look for the program that really matches up well. And I always look at a course list of a program what are the courses say? What are the titles of the courses? For your colleague, assuming they're in a leadership role in an organization, I would avoid programs with titles like Introduction to Leadership or Foundations of Leadership. Those are theory courses. You know, you write 20 page papers on the theory of leadership. And and again, that's great if you're doing the kind of stuff we're doing. But for most people, I don't think that's as helpful as a course, for example, on salary negotiation, where the focus is much more on the content and learning and the people. And then go talk to the faculty, go to the information night, go to the online information event, if there is one for an online program. And the reason I would do that is not just to find out about the program, but to see who else shows up. Because a big part of how this program is going to be a value to your colleague and anyone else who's considering this is who else is going to be in the program with you? Do the people who show up at the information night seem like people who are really invested in this, that are exciting, that are doing the kinds of things you want to be doing, that are going to challenge you, they're going to learn from? Or do they seem like people that you're like, mm, I don't know, like this doesn't really feel like my crowd. And that's good if that's going to push you in a new way, but you'll get a sense of that if you do a couple of those and get a good feel for what really works for you. And then finally, I would also echo Bonnie's thought, um, I, and I'd make one other point on accreditation. Everyone says they're accredited and almost everyone is. 
but the kind of accreditation is different. And here in the States, look for regional accreditation. That is the top tier. Something like national accreditation, which sounds better, is actually not as good. There are certainly good national accredited programs, of course, but it's much more hit and miss. Look for regionally accredited programs and universities here in the States. Those tend to be the top tier, higher level programs and are going to have higher standards that are going to be of value to you and your colleagues. So hope that's helpful as you start thinking about where they'd start looking. This next question is from Jill. How do you find your podcast guests? I know there are so many qualified people, so you do have someone who actively recruits your guests. Jill, thank you so much for this question. Bonnie, when this came in, I realized I'm not sure I've articulated an answer to either of these questions on the show before. So first of all, the how do I find guests? Well, uh, generally speaking, three ways. One of the ways is that either I approach someone or someone approaches me who is a recognized expert, highly respected leader in this space. A recent example of that would be John Maxwell was on the show a few episodes ago. John is a tremendously respected leader, an incredible author. He's been doing the work of leadership development for, gosh, 50 plus years. I have been following his work for the better part of 20 years incredible leader, someone that we can all learn from. And so when his folks reached out to me and asked if he could come on the show, that for me is an obvious yes. And folks like John Maxwell, Patrick Lencioni, Daniel Goleman, Susan Cain, who've been on the show before, those for me are almost always yeses because those are people that whether you followed their work or not, whether you're fans of them or not, are people we can all learn from. So that's one way I find people that would come on the show. The second way, in probably the most common way, is I'm trying to answer a problem from one of our academy members or some of our listeners or in many cases, a group of our academy members. And if I hear a struggle that comes up from one of our academy sessions or someone says, you know, I'm really dealing with this issue and I don't feel like we have something in our library that I can point people towards. Uh, Of course, in our academy sessions, we're often talking live and we're sharing experiences, but I also am always thinking, well, what, what is in the episode library that would be really helpful with this and that can be useful to others? And if there's not a clear answer to that, oftentimes I find myself then going out and finding the person who I think would help us answer that question. And especially if I've heard that issue come up two or three times, that for me is a very clear direction and then go find that person. And that's why some of you have emailed me before and said, it's sort of weird that I was having this problem. And then all of a sudden you aired an episode on it. I go on the assumption generally that if two or three people have raised something that's come up on my radar screen, that there's lots of other people out there that are probably struggling with the same thing. So that's good work for me to do is to be able to find what's not working for people and then to be able to go find guests that can answer that question. And normally then I'm reaching out to them directly. And then the third way I find guests is someone comes across my radar screen and either I just find them captivating or I have a personal interest uh, in them or their story or, or some version of that or a friend of mine will mention the name or someone in my network will mention the name of someone. And uh, the example I'm thinking of at the moment would be Edith Eager. When I came across her book in an article a couple of years ago, and learned a little bit about her story. She was on the show a while back. And here's this amazing woman who survived Auschwitz and the Holocaust barely, came to America after World War II, 
became a psychologist and now teaches people about compassion and is 90 plus years old and wrote a book and is going around speaking. I'm like, oh my goodness, could we have her on the show? Like, what an amazing story. Not in the traditional vein of what you know we typically think about leadership on the, on the show, but boy, what a great story. How much we could learn about compassion, which is so important in leadership. And so she was gracious to come on the show a while back. And so those are the three ways that I tend to find people come on the show. Now, I also get pitched four to five times a day for guests to come on the show, which by the way, is a privilege, not a complaint. You all have, because you've trusted us to do this, have allowed us to be at a place where we get a lot of people reaching out to us. And a lot of those pitches come from agents. I ignore most of them because they aren't people that I think are the best fit for you in answering a leadership question. And I I joke with people sometimes that I'm trying to find the people who actually aren't trying to be interviewed on podcasts. Uh, I really want to find the people who are going to help us in the best possible way. Now, to the other part of your question, Jill, who helps me with this? I do not delegate any of this. The only part that gets delegated as far as our interviews on the show are in post-production. Andrew, who is amazing, takes the interviews that sometimes are longer and brings it down and edits out the things that I thought were interesting, but he says no, and no one else would think that was interesting. So that's super helpful. Thank you, Andrew, for doing that for all of us every week. But on the front end, I do all of the guest invitations personally. I go out and find guests personally, and I also do all of the prep work personally because first and foremost, this show needs to be useful for you. You have allowed me the privilege of 30 to 40 minutes of your time each week. I never take that privilege for granted. I want to ensure that you come away with something useful you can act on, and that means learning from people that can help all of us get better at this thing we call leadership and management, uh, to the earlier comment. And then the other perhaps selfish reason is I'm going to dive in on the work of the guest. I spend an average of four to five hours preparing for interviews of most guests. So if I can't get excited about their work, how would I get, you know, have anyone else get excited about it? And that's a really helpful indicator for me if I'm spending that time. I just turned down an interview request this morning from a person that many of you would recognize the name of. It would be wonderful to have them on a show from a marketing standpoint because probably new people would find us that don't listen already. But I just, I wasn't really that excited about reading the book, and it's not really a leadership topic. And I'm sure we would have learned some things, but it's not core and central to what's going to be useful for you, our listeners. So I said no, which you know, in the short term is probably not the best quote-unquote business decision, but in the long run, is a better experience for you as a listener. And all of this means that a big part of my job is I get to read books, I get to dive in on people's life's work and find out the best and most insightful ideas. It is a joy, and I get to do it because you all have given me the privilege to influence your thinking and your learning. So all that to say, thanks. It's been a thrill to do this since 2011. I'm going to keep going as long as you allow me that privilege. And I feel like I'm just getting started. If one or more of these questions was relevant to you right now, several related episodes you'll also want to check out. One of them is episode 143, How to Get Way Better at Accepting Feedback. I mentioned the work earlier of Sheila Heen. She was my guest on that episode, and we talked about when you get feedback, what do you do with it? Six key tactics that she 
describes in that episode to be able to take action on. One of them is experimenting. As I mentioned, there's five others that are really helpful in thinking through how you would frame handling feedback, responding to it, and then what you do with it. And also the mindset you go about it. A lot of times we you see a lot out there in the leadership training space on how to give feedback. And that is an important skill for us to have. There's not a lot on how to receive feedback. And that's the focus of episode 143. So check that out. I'd also invite you to look at episode 249, how to succeed with leadership and management with John Cotter. In that episode, John and I talked about the distinction between leadership and management. And by the way, the distinction that I use and that Tom Henschel uses comes from John Cotter's work. And so I'm thinking about it for that reason. But I'm also thinking about it because he makes the point in that episode that one thing that's changed in the last decade of business and organizational uh, theory is that there's no longer this assumption that change is an event that you know we change and then we're done and then we go on and keep doing things the way we've been doing for a long time today it's much more the reality for so many of us that change is a constant we are continually leading and managing in most organizations and in most roles there is some aspect of that that's continually happening and he talks about how do we as leaders and managers handle that within the organization of today? And how do we, if we are in an organization where we are erring on one side and we need to do a bit more of the other, how do we make that transition well? Specifically, if there's been a lot of management, but maybe not as much leadership and innovation, episode 249 is a great place to start. I also mentioned the work of Edith Eager, Holocaust survivor, an incredible story, 90 plus years old when she appeared on episode 336. She had the message for us on the choice for compassion. What a fabulous life story of hers and a wonderful conversation to listen to, regardless of whether or not compassion is top of mind for you right now, episode 336. And then finally, I mentioned Tom Henschel's episode from The Look and Sound of Leadership, Leadership versus Management. I will link up to it here in the episode notes and also in this week's weekly leadership guide. It is a great 20-minute overview of the distinction between the two and how practically we can frame those on a regular basis. All of those you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website, on the episode notes, notes rather, and in this week's weekly leadership guide. You can get access to the weekly leadership guide by joining your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. That will get you the guide each Wednesday with all the links from the show, plus other resources that I've discovered for you during the week. I'll also give you access to the entire episode library, searchable by topic since 2011. It's an easy way to track down the things that don't show on the public directories because we can only show the most recent 300 episodes. Unfortunately, we'd love to show more, but that's just how it is. So all of it's on the website, though. You can track it down easily. Plus, my own personal library with everything I've databased for the last four or five years, searchable by topic two. All of that, Coaching for Leaders. Dot com set up your free membership next week michael bungay stanier is back the best-selling author of the coaching habit with his new book the advice trap don't miss it have a fabulous monday and see you next week take care